Shallow words breed nothing new. Shallow words breed nothing new. It could suck. So, hey everybody, uh, this is another episode of Superstructure, uh, this is Will Beeman, and I have my co-hosts, Natalie Smith. Hello, what's going on? That is Natalie Smith, and I also have <laughs> Maximilian Seho. Uh, ciao, bello, uh, oh wait, wrong, sorry. Um, I, I, was, I wasn't ready for the language bit, okay. Um, so, uh, this is an episode that I have really, really been looking forward to for like, a while, mostly because we've been teasing the shit out of it forever, but um, ever since I started kind of going down the the historical rabbit hole of Franciscanism, uh, which is the theme that we covered uh, between Superstructure and Money on the Left in several of our latest content over the last couple of weeks. Content. <laughs> we've been wanting to go over a uh, review, I guess. This is a media review of the papal encyclical from uh, last year. Zero stars. <laughs> the reason we've been teasing it so long is that it was Natalie's job to read the encyclical, and it was pretty boring, so... Uh... It took me some time until I just like was like, all right, I got to read this motherfucker. Not literally, yeah. but yeah, I think. If you were transcribing people like performing the rosary for an hour, it would have been less repetitive than, <laughs> the, than the encyclical. Uh, it, yeah, it's not a great writer, but um, yeah. So Natty, do you want to tell us a little bit about the encyclical? Like, what is the encyclical? Uh, the encyclical is a... Uh... An exciting bedtime story about how we have to love our neighbors. No, um. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting because a lot of people sort of have been excited about Pope Francis, sort of some of his nods to economic populism or immigration reform or the UN or po poor people's movements-ish uh, but it's interesting, the encyclical is his third encyclical. He released it in October 2020 in, at a memorial ceremony for St. Francis of Assisi uh, in Assisi, Italy. It was the first trip outside Rome since COVID had started. Um, and it, the title, Fratulli Tutti, is like, all, we're all brothers and comes from a, some quote of Francis. And it's interesting, like, did you want me to get into his bio a little bit, or...? Yeah, well, um, one thing that I want to say, kind of adding on to this before you go into some biographical details. So, as we're recording this, uh, the big COVID relief bill uh, finally passed, so hopefully should be seeing that $1,400 pretty soon, although I haven't yet. Um, I digress. Um, this is a very, like future-facing document that is very much, like, grounded in politics. And there are a lot of, I think that a lot of these ideas will end up inflecting a response to Trumpism or, you know, any of these people. Well, and Biden, and Biden is interested in the Catholic liberalism. I mean, yeah, and this, he's very Catholic. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, this is drenched in the past, too, and a lot of the history of Argentine complications of political economy and all different things that have kind of gone between like statist and corporatist and Peronist and neoliberalism and dictatorship and then the pink wave and just a lot of currents go yeah. through it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So as we talk about this, I guess the question that I want to have in our mind and like, you know, a criteria for like, how are we evaluating the actual content of this text is, you know, it lays out a, a global political vision. Is this a global political vision that we can see adequately responding to this moment? Because it's not like the Pope is nobody, <laughs> you know, um, this is already an extremely influential document. And, and I also think we want to like kind of push the left and that we understand where there's good things you can see and, oh, this is good. Like international institutions or like caring about people who are in poverty, but like pushing to be like, okay, but like, let's look deeper. Let's look at the details. Let's look at what is he really saying, like at a deeper level and what are the real implications and backwards and forwards in history of like this way of looking at it. Like instead of just seeing the, oh, he, he said a few things that sound good. And, you know. <laughs> it, and also I think to, to an earlier point, like things are shifting right now. And that's and I think that's also what the Biden administration um, represents, even, you know, in probably the most ambivalent terms that you could uh, imagine and in ways that we still are, you know, don't quite understand. But um, I love him. He's cute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when things shift, you know, it's important to look at what powerful thinkers and and authorities are offering as a vision to um, not just respond, but shape the way the the ground and the political ground and the way we envision a, a political future is um, changing. And so unpacking the not just the historical lineage of the Pope himself, but the way that these ideas tap into a, a you know, a history that we've tapped into various times on this podcast, but the history of, of a Franciscan rejection of money. And I think it's important to, to put it in those terms, but you're you liberal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, ever since I saw Pope Francis go on the Joe Rogan experience, I I knew that he was going to become a really influential thought leader. (laughs) What was your favorite? What was your favorite joke? His favorite, your favorite joke he made? Well, I thought it was really cool when they when they smoked a blunt together because it was just so like unique for the podcast. And then he sucked Joe Rogan's toes. <laughs> yeah, um, but then Joe to wash Ro- them, to wash them. <laughs> anyway, so perhaps perhaps now uh, we can get into some of the biographical details about Pope Francis and like, you know, set up the political context that that he came from. I know Natty did a lot of research on this. I did a lot of research. Um, she taught herself how to read for yeah. this podcast. <laughs> I read an entire article. It was pretty long. Um, yeah, it's interesting because he doesn't come out of some leftist Catholic tradition by any means. You know, he wasn't a liberation theologist. I mean, within the Jesuits, he was a known as a conservative disciplinarian and not just to the lefty Jesuits. And, you know, there's a lot of crazy politics going on in Argentina in the 70s. And I mean, you have sort of after the major Peronist split in this in 73, you have kind of uh, left and right Peronism and, you know, you have lefty Jesuit terrorists, the Montoneros, but then you also have people like on the right of Peronism that are Jesuits that like uh, the Pope was associated with Bergoglio at the time, uh, the Iron Guard, right? And he was pretty much silent during the dictatorship. You know, he 
was sort of just doing his uh, Jesuit thing and being a right-wing Jesuit. <laughs> uh, but there's certainly some shady implications. I mean, one of the biggest ones involved like some more lefty Jesuit priests who he kind of helps probably get arrested, uh, but maybe not, you know. Uh, and then, I don't know, where do I, you want me to, you want me to go through his whole career or? I heard he was pretty hot. No, no, he wasn't. <laughs> no. But in the nineties, okay. he, he, he had actually got like disciplined with the Jesuits, like for being too difficult. And like, <laughs> like in the nineties, he starts kind of becoming a rising star. He like hitches his wagon to this guy who was at the time, like the archbishop in, in Buenos Aires uh, or something. Quaracino, who was just like a raging homophobe, you know, he said on TV that people should be, uh, gay people should be locked in ghettos and was living in opulent luxury, you know, and this is sort of when in the late 90s, like, the Pope starts to make more gestures of reconciliation, like, I should, the church should not have had said nothing, you know, about during the dictatorship. And If I had a nickel every time I heard that. Yeah, right. No, totally. And then uh, he he was also associated with like this neoliberal Peronist in the 90s, Carlos Menem. Uh, and it's interesting, though, that some of these contradictions, because like at a party with the or like an event in the late 90s is one of the first times he spoke out against for Menem. He spoke out against like economic injustice, you know, and the oligarchs who preside over the few. And this is sort of one of these fascinating Peronist contradictions where like this right-wing bishop and this, like, right-wing neolib are like, yeah, talk about some economic populism and make some apologies. And this is when he starts washing more people's feet and uh, uh, poor people and people with AIDS and, you know, starts bringing photographers to the washing of the feet and so forth. All the while that this Quaricino is, like, the one basically making his career as far as getting him to uh, the Vatican and so forth. The the washing of the feet is is really interesting. I mean, uh, you know, on on the one hand, that's that's just biblical, right? Like that's what Jesus does. But there's um, in in the Franciscan tradition, there's like a a preoccupation with touching and with with experiencing uh, firsthand, whether it's experiencing poverty firsthand or experiencing, you know, nature or suffering. There's a way in which the touching of the feet very much fits into this kind of visiting of the poor that I think we wanted to dig into. Um, it's, it's worth noting, it's worth noting again, that like the two priests that he's like, there's the most questions around him and like his associations with helping with them getting in prison. I mean, he like withdrew their right to give mass because they were like lefty Jesuits who, who were living in the slums with poor people in non-hierarchical living situations. You know, he's not like <laughs> some friend of the poor. I mean, the first time he speaks about the poor is the late nineties with a neoliberal guy like next to him. And he's like, let's bring some photographers to wash feet. Also this guy who's like the Bishop who's going to like make my career is living in luxury, but I take the bus. But I, I think even <laughs> if I, 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 think I know, a, but it's worth noting. Yeah, the yeah, hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah, well, I get, right. I get but, it, but it's worth yeah, yeah. saying that's not actually who he is anyway, which, because that's true of the Franciscans in many ways as well. Right. Like, well, right. That's what I, yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's, that's what I wanted to sort of, break into a little bit like the contradiction 
is baked into the pro- the Franciscan project, right? It's right. it's both the the need to be like casting people off for being too radical, but also sort of doubling in this through the mediation of like, you know, thinking of our money on the left episode, like they would have helpers carry their purses filled with money, right? right? Because they weren't supposed to touch money. Right. So the, the contradictions are baked in, right? So it, it's not like he's some impure, necessarily Franciscan, right? And, and, and he's just like, you know, pretending to be a Franciscan necessarily. I, I, I think that's important to say as well. Yeah, and also it's it's worth noting Francis himself, while he certainly, uh, I don't think, can be accused of cynicism. I mean, he was kind of nuts and he was really like, he was really serious about it when he went to, you know, visit the lepers and, you know, go live in nature. And, you know, like he got sick and almost died from that like several times. But there there is something really interesting that um, Francis and his followers come from like a really affluent background as like well. Like my like my hero, the the Buddha. <laughs> um oh my gosh. I thought that I thought that Dasha blocked all of us on Twitter, but but here uh, I don't be- I, Just kidding, I don't believe in blocking. That prevents encounter. She's more into ghosting is is what I've heard. Ghosts have a yeah. lot to teach us. <laughs> so yeah, I think having like, you know, started, there's so much to talk about with with this. But there i think we can we can really focus on this point about touching right about this this need to touch right mm. and this sort of sense of uh material and embodied relationship that is not mediated he's trying to torture me cuz i'm currently in isolation cuz <laughs> my partner has covid <laughs> but yes touching i hate it <laughs> Well, you just, you're not valid then. (laughs) Natty has retreated to something even more basic and unmediated than touch, which is... You're more radical. Pure isolation. Um, She's visiting herself right now, which is extremely radical and Franciscan. Super radical. So I kind of wanted to get into that touching, like, problematic in the context of you know, where historically this encyclical is situated, right? So, and it's, you know, very interesting that it came out during COVID, which I think is, uh, it's not something that we necessarily have the full range to discuss. We'll leave that for a Gombin to discuss. Um, But I I think, I think you just did. (laughs) (laughs) He'll knock it out of the park. (laughs) Yes, he will. Um, But I, I think it's interesting the way we can think about, right, neoliberalism as this sort of, you know, further accelerating a sort of ongoing liberal precarity um, at, at, at the political economic level and at the way we all relate to uh, the production process and the 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 way that caretaking goes on and these sorts of things which is not to say of course that prior to neoliberalism things were perfect in any way like that's not what's being articulated here but um there's an acceleration associated with it that also speaks to i think a sort of broader horizon of political economic relations when specifically when we're thinking about touch and when we're thinking about political, economic, dare one say, metaphysics 
and how these things are all interlocking. I want to touch the soil and my neighbor and we will, (laughs) I will hug my neighbor and wash their feet and that will be the economic exchange. And then we kiss the ground together and that will be a good uh, system. The the whole point of uh, like when Max says, you know, the kind of this problematic of touching, right? The impulse behind all of these touches and these encounters and, you know, hugging the poor and all of these things, like, that impulse is, like, it's an impulse to care, which is why these stories are so powerful, right? Because under neoliberalism, right, like, there's this contraction in the fiscal sphere, you know, there's nothing is being organized to take care of people at any kind of big or abstract scale and so everything you know why don't put this in but it's because women's pussies are too tight so nobody's getting laid that's the contraction <laughs> no we're putting that in we're putting that in no, God damn it. i have to edit these fucking no. things, so yes anything that you say is fair game to put in that's a, that's its own dasha file we're just gonna we're just gonna um we're just gonna release 10 seconds of that but uh, yeah i mean just to set up um the reading that Max is about to do, right? The impulse to touch is an expression of an impulse to care, right? And to to take care of people. But um, it's very historically specific that aesthetic representations of care focus so much on this imagery of touching and encountering and visiting and all, all of these things that are, you know, you making contact with the other, Right. In in a kind of a charitable way. Um, and of course, we, you know, this should also make you think about, you know, the not so charitable forms of, you know, the touch or the encounter. Right. It's like economics is all built on the exchange. Right. The the barter or, you know, you have vulgar political theorists who will reduce everything to this immediate proximate act of violence. But yeah, like in in, in this particular case, I think that we want to talk about the touch as grasping towards possibilities for taking care, both taking care of oneself and taking care of the other, who's importantly an other. Right. And what the left sort of identifies with, I think, and that is that impulse, right? But it's, and what we want to draw out is the way in which these gestures at that care are a fundamentally impoverished uh, vision. And not in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And on that note, I think Max has a reading that hopefully we've set up like two thirds of the way. Yeah. So um, I'm going to start by framing this discussion of the encyclical through reading Mommy. And by that, I mean (laughs) uh, Scott Ferguson, um, who you might know as... Scotia, to make it feminine. Yes. Right. Scotia. um, (laughs) Scotia, or of the famed, you know, Money on the Left podcast. I think he's been on Superstructure before. World, world famous. Yeah, I met him once. Yeah, um, in his book, Dex- he was fine. Is he a slut? Yes. Um, <laughs> in his book, Declaration. Strong handshake, though. Oh, a lot of a lot of care. Um, <laughs> he does not have a strong handshake. Anyway, we, we, um, we, we, we love you, mommy. Yeah, um, okay, strong hug. Strong hug. Strong hugs. <laughs> Um, so in his book, Declarations of Dependence, Money, Aesthetics, and the Politics of Care, he does, you know, obviously a lot of work in the MMT humanity space, one might say founds MMT humanities, uh, definitively, I I would Uh say that. 
Um, he, he's he's the Steve Jobs of left MMT. <laughs> I think is I think is how he likes to be described. That is that is right. Or or even um, the mother the mother Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> Who are we kidding? He's the Francis of MMT. <laughs> um, so he in in the book he obviously does a work thinking about the aesthetic experience of not just neoliberalism but modernity sort of writ large. And I'm going to read a little bit so we can start to get into in relationship to this idea of touching the poor and touching the impoverished that Francis and Pope Francis offer some of the, you know, underlying assumptions that create the necessity for that aesthetic experience. So in discussing uh, a bunch of aesthetic forms, though, he talks about this aesthetic experience as an intimate indexicality and all-encompassing gravity. Scott Ferguson is is a film and media studies professor, but for, for those who aren't in the know about indexicality, um, yeah, Max is pantomiming two things touching. Um, in film and media theory, um, people use it to kind of describe the sort of unmediated imprint of uh, light onto celluloid uh, in a in a camera. Um, and the, the idea is that an indexical, like identical one-to-one impression of, of at least a surface of the world. And, and this is not to say that people who use indexicality think that the photo is like all of reality, you know, like, but, but the point is that it captures something that really is part of reality. That is an imprint. Um, and, and anyway, which again, ties in with touching. Yeah. Yeah. Full story. It's touching. In talking about the, this sort of aesthetic experience that we're, we're discussing with this Franciscan of touching the poor, um, Scott is referring to it as a, as a sort of intimate indexicality, which ends up becoming an all-encompassing gravity. And they are meant to, these, this touching is meant to transmute sensations of loss, falling, and disintegration into assuring affections and rhythms. And and this so you you know I'm I'm tapping my finger on the table right now um, because I'm just perennially anxious. Uh, <laughs> that is me um, finding and assuring an affectionate rhythm, right? Uh, <laughs> to the touch, a sort of yeah. ground. Dare one say a base that you can rely on? That because because you because we've been evacuated and we're precarious, right? And so this, as he as Scott says, is a. What it does is miming a convulsive and dangerously misallocated fiscal apparatus. These affections and rhythms repeatedly register the feeling that there's no there there under neoliberalism. And, but at the same time, an ardent there there answers money's evacuation from neoliberal existence. So it's this, this, this act of trying to find ground because you you you're falling and the registering of that ground is the act that both reinforces the fact that there is a ground but also that we were evacuated of a sort of collective existence that gra- that could ground us in in safety mm-hmm. and we, we we talked about this you know in in talking about the kind of um fetish of a difficult and almost unwinnable class struggle mm-hmm. right that that is 
kind of perversely comforting and self-soothing because at least you know how difficult it is. So it it becomes a familiar surface that you have mastery of, mastery over, rather than the precarity and uncertainty of just kind of falling and not even knowing where to grab. Well, it's trying to accept, right? It's trying to accept precarity by making precarity like inevitable, as opposed to yeah, like politics is hard and it is precarious, and precisely it's precarious emotionally to try to transform something, but that sense of there not being a there there is not a call to nihilism it's a call to embracing the openness of contingency yeah and the the last thing before max continues reading this quote it's um as as dan berger noted on a previous episode we we have a tendency to to make not finishing the readings into like a bit that we all perform um but uh so the last comment before Max. It's mostly my fault. No, I don't know. I mean, I'm doing it right now, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the idea of a there there, um, you this can this is a double entendre, right? Like this is also like imagine comforting a child, right? Like there there, like we're all looking for our there there. That's a good point. <laughs> I never thought of that before with that. And so Scott, you know, making these arguments on the terms of like sensory experience is suggesting that this touching, right, this grounding, um. It, it furnishes a nervous sensoria with disastrously insufficient forms of collective care, right? So lacking collective care, the contingent, immediate ground and touch and rhythm and, affect, and the sort of assuring affect of the repeated touch of the repeated knock is what is a what one might call a symptom of carelessness, right? This need to ground and 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 reduce at you know thinking we could think about looking for the base, looking for the base. Where's the real? Where's the real? Where am I grounded, right? And so he says in the care symptom, sensations of loss, incoherence, and disintegration index environmental precarity at the threshold of worldly disclosure. So I want to take a second to also to to elaborate on what this means. Scott right? is a master At, of a high-end language. He he absolutely is. <laughs> it's total superstructure. Um, <laughs> These aren't even real words. <laughs> so a disintegration index like I thought I was stuck on intimate indexicality and like the various wink wink in- implications and now my index is disintegrating. It's it like, all indexes disintegrate. That's the point. Oh, so frustrating. This really rustles my index. <laughs> so the the I think we can think about this in, you know, the environmental precarity at the threshold of worldly disclosure, right? Environmental p- precarity is precarity amidst a neoliberal hellscape of evacuated care, right? That's pretty clear. And so then at the threshold of worldly disclosure can mean multiple things. And I think in, in, the, in one instance, it's this, the touch is your the threshold of your disclosure of yourself, right? And so the touch grounds grounds the self in a world where the 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 money cradle um, is is been has been evacuated, right? Is is not present. But also we could think about thresholds here when we're thinking on the at at the register of touch. We can't have distance, right? You, touch is predicated on the reduction of distance. And so we're, we now have thresholds as a, as a sort of sensory matter. And so we can start to think about the borders of existence and the way touch, touching at the borders um, it is implicated in the, in the care symptom of this sense of loss. 
And so we'll, we're going to play more with that later when we think about borders and nations. And, and immigration. And, and, and immigration, <laughs> and, exactly. And so, um, and so what Scott says is symptoms of this sort function as, you know, attempts at self-care and as opaque messages to the other. And so this, right, this touching is the opaque message to the other, which then grounds the self the real encounter the handshake the trump i can smell your sweat as we shake hands right i pick up the thing i i dig i dig the commodity out of the ground right there's this encounter there's this touching there's and this... then i i get it from a argentine that's like i'm having some malbec right now and living in chile it's like oh this is from argentina like ugh. that's self-care because you're touching the other um, that's true there's some it's a cute accent Buenos Aires accent. Not not you, bitch. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Leave that in. Um. <laughs> and so, you know, in this sort of singular encounter relation of touching is then posited for Scott against relations of macro interdependence and the political economic process that we talk about on this show constantly, right? These This relationship of structural provisioning that enables our existence as you know as nodes that aren't the totality of the production process and interestingly like sorry just to jump in but the pope i think if you don't look deeply you would think well yeah he totally looks at the macro global scale he talks about you know the un constantly and that is one of his like decent things but like even the way he frames you know he's very stuck in this dialectical movement of Global to local, particular to universal. And and he very much does kind of have the sense of the UN or even of regional blocks of oppressed countries that what you see more often coming from him is a, an obsession with the particular identity of the national. And he, he makes gestures to en- encounter into the global and the macro, but it never escapes from this sense of that need for the touching original particular. Right. And and so specifically to this point, I'm going to jump to another moment in Scott where he's actually talking about Franciscans. But he's talking about Franciscans on precisely these terms that we've just discussed with the touching. So he says this thinning of experience, and he means thinning as in contracting to the touch, not thinking with macro structures. Not about the hair. Mm-hmm. Not about the Right, not yeah, about the and hair. This, this, this is the threshold of what the world can disclose to you is what you can touch. Exactly. That's what I know is real. Exactly. Right? So this thinning of, experiences prom- of, of experience promises a stronger and more abundant ground for being that lies beyond the excesses of papal mediation and the anxieties of political economy, right? And so this is where we're starting... Papal mediation. Yeah, papal mediation yeah. <laughs> is, is like the the, the globalist, uh, you know... Transnational capital, right? I mean... Right, yeah. Transnational woke capital conspiracy cabal, you know, right. it's like... In the early modern period, there's this sense that, you know, the Pope is off over there and he's, you know, controlling everything and we've lost our local sovereignty because, you know, because of the Pope. And then the Reformation happens kind of as a sort of a right wing populist reaction to what is something more like uh, and dare I say neoliberal Holy Roman Empire <laughs> that has lost all credibility. And to be super clear, we're not some sort of uh, papal revisionists or defenders. I mean, it's interesting. You can really see in uh, in this encyclical some of the 
particular history with uh, that you could see with some of the book with the Crusades and with like East West encounters. He's constantly like talking about this imam that he knows and they've like worked together to like synthesize the scientific West and the spiritual East, you know, but <laughs> there is like a, I, I lost my train of thought a little bit, but my point is that uh, it can be true that there's a, a conspiracy and that also we're not defending something. <laughs> yeah. We hate, we kind of hate all popes. I would say yeah, we hate yeah. them in different ways, right? Like we can criticize Trump and Joe Biden. Right, like that's no, I don't know. know about that. That's that's a step too far. Um, Joe is pretty cute. <laughs> I mean, Trump, <laughs> you're pushing me. I don't, <laughs> but but right. So, the idea of that the abundant ground, like in this sense of touching and grasping and contracting to the touch as a sort of epistemology of knowledge, right, of what I can touch, um, is meant to lie beyond the excesses of this papal mediation, i.e. globalism, and then the anxieties of political economy, which are associated with that. So then I'm going to continue, right? So Scott says, but in truth, the incessant phenomenological diminishment not only hardens the sensorium against disintegrating effects, but also deepens the poisonous contraction of metaphysics that arises from, you know, thinking of the early modern period, from the era's impoverishment of worldly existence. And there we can start to see poverty being posited here, as well as, again, this sense of disintegration. So if the care problem, right, if the care symptom reckons with being abandoned through needing to touch the other, then what Scott is arguing is that the touching only reinforces the disintegrating effects of a, a, a sort of metaphysical structure that can't allow for a, a sort of action that's that's macro, right? A sort of political, economic, macro provisioning coordination or, you know, a, a, a cradling, a, a caring that is collective. And so this gets hardened. And I mean, that's for Scott what the sort of modern... Again, not to dilute any sense of the difference that's associated, but that this carelessness and this modern problem of touching and force and and how we can reconcile the dialectics of the particular and the universal, this is what plays out. And and Pope Francis, importantly, is participating in this problem. Um, and so I think we've we've pretty much set up finally where we can really read from Pope Francis in a way that. Um, really takes on precisely what this what this problematic lays bare, and then we can get into all of our critiques of him. Pope Francis writes, at a time when everything seems to disintegrate and lose consistency, it is good for us to appeal to the solidity. Solidarity. Oh, sorry. Born of the consciousness that we are responsible for the fragility of others as we strive to build a common future. Solidarity finds concrete expression in service, which can take a variety of forms in an effort to care for others. And service, in great part, means caring for vulnerability for the vulnerable members of our families, our society, and our people. Note the order there. Um, In offering such service, Individuals learn to set aside their own wishes and desires, their pursuit of power before the concrete gaze of those who are most vulnerable. I don't like when the concrete, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I hate when they look at me. I know, I'm like, 
So, and this is, you know, we, we get into some of the real juicy touching bits, right? <laughs> Service always looks to their faces, touches their flesh, senses their closeness, and even in some cases suffers that closeness and tries to help them. Service is never ideological. Never. Or we do not serve ideas. <laughs> we serve people. Yeah, which is also a uh, rejected McDonald's slogan. Um, <laughs> but uh... so, so we might say that this is on the nose and like we've we've chopped off the nose and like touched it and juggled it um we're we're well, past yeah i'm gonna pass i'm gonna pass the nose to natty well it's interesting because we've we've kind of i've been exploring a bit uh the some of the ideas of uh, martha Feynman. legal theory talks about vulnerability in an attempt and um martha mccluskey tries to actually frame this in an mmt light sort of instead of seeing things from this sort of uh place of individual lock-in wills that are all equal it's trying to say okay well how is actually a uh, vulnerability at a macro scale systematically baked in but it's interesting the ways in which he really sort of highlights the ways this is sometimes one critique could be sometimes still thought especially in francis in a kind of individuality i mean max pointed out how uh the order with which says vulnerable members of our families society people and it's like there's always this sense again like we brought up of encounter before that you have a unified family that's one thing that you have a unified people that's one thing and that all these one things have their essence which is their fucking essence and they come into contact you can touch it yeah and they come into contact and they touch and that that can't be coordinated beyond the level of encounter it can't be that like there's a I, I don't know if we like the word web, but that there's like this complicated form that uh, entails in different ways bringing things in. No, it's like each thing you have to go, you have to suffer with them, you have to uh, wash their feet on the bus, you know, and that that's, it's not surprising that that might have a sort of self-serving element, you know, where the Pope's having photographers come because like everybody knows that washing people's feet on buses is not the global solution. He's like washing feet on buses, but also the UN, like to cover his bases, you know, but there's still right. the mm-hmm. sense of micro and macro. Yeah, yeah. And it's just not really, <laughs> it's not really, it's like this sense of this needing this concrete gaze and the sense that also the sense that service is apolitical. That's like a super liberal point of view. Like, Oh, uh, charities and NGOs just arise in nature. And like, we just all try to donate our money and for the common good, that's not ideological at all. Or, and, and, and that it's a sacrifice. Yeah. Right. That, that, that you're losing. Something. You have to tax, yeah. you have to tax yourself to touch. Right? right. Yeah. And so there's, there's the sense of, you know, like it's the unpleasant thing that, you know, sometimes you have to just deal with the concrete gaze of the poor while you, you know, wash their feet once a week. And then the reason why for him it's apolitical is because it's literally objective. It's it's an object, right? There's nothing for him that's political about that because for Pope Francis in his metaphysical tradition that he's drawing on, 
touching is the only way you actually know something, right? It's the only epistemological ground you can have for existence. That must explain why he didn't, he claimed that he didn't know about all the disappearances during the dirty war until first he said till, and and first he said till, till 20 years later. And then he revised that to, no, I only found out at the 1985 trials. That's because he didn't touch the bodies. That's all. all, And and the same way he said he dismissed in Chile and like, this is like in the last five years where he's dismissed victims of like right wing Pinochet, Pinochetista, like priests of sexual abuse. And he says, well, I need evidence because somebody's testimony is not evidence that, you know, he had to be there. Yeah. My fingerprints aren't on those people. So. Right. And just to reiterate, too, because I think it's important as we move forward, right? For us in our vision, how we correct for this reductive base touching and grasping and this sort of assuring rhythmic. So like grounding is, of course, through the money as a as sort of what Scott calls a boundless public utility. Right. Because because it's boundless, because it's abstract, because abstraction is the locus of caretaking at a macro level of our political, economic, mm-hmm. ongoing. It's conditioning all of the touching. Exactly. It, it proceeds. Yeah. Right. It's 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 an a priori in the fancy speak. Um, that, that means before. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Um, so that this sense of mediation, right? The mediation of our world and, and of the way we are continuing to reproduce it and transform it at various nodes of political and economic agency, as well as administrative agency and, and legal agency and all of these all of these points, right? We could push you back to all of our Fred Lee talk from other episodes. But the reason why we say this is because it's the causal locus of existence is not touch. Right. That's not the causal locus, because if it was just immediate contracted encounters, we could not coordinate. It would not be possible. And that's where you can reclaim. I mean, that's where the vulnerability that that's why it's so crucial. McCluskey's use of Feynman, because that's precisely the point with MMT is that you're not uh, falsely saying that like some part of society has to not that taxes are bad, but because of democracy, but that that. In order to provision, you can provision publicly beyond like taking from somebody else to provision for the vulnerable. And touching is importantly zero sum, right? You have to go, you know, whether it's relationally, you know, in that sense, or you have to go literally grab the money, scramble across town, right? Or a scramble from New York down to Washington and then deposit it at the treasury. And then you can... Um, then send out a bunch of checks, right? And they they hit people's accounts. Um, We can even think of the ways our metaphors are operating here too. But um, importantly, right, what MMT shows and then the left MMT, Left Humanities Project shows is not just that taxes don't fund spending, but zero-sum relations of contiguity Of of touching aren't the causal mechanism by which reproduction is afforded. And so now it might be useful to get into the way he thinks about the nation state. He loves it. Loves it. Really quickly first, (laughs) I think that there's something really interesting here, and this will tie into the nation state, because as we see, the way that he thinks about the nation state is sort of a a rounded up version of how the ideal human should behave. The ideal collective should behave that way too, and this sort of um, selfish in order to then be selfless, right? And um, Like a taxpayer. Yeah, right. Um, 
there is something like rhythmic and self-assuring like in the Franciscan tradition, I think, about visiting the poor, right? Um, Because in a certain sense, what you're visiting, right, you're having encounters with what it would be like if you gave up money, right? If you gave up your uh, entanglements with forms of abstraction and just kind of, you know, we're just roughing it with the indigenous and with the poor and, you know, it's, and you can, you can think about like missionary work, right? Which ties in directly to the early modern nation state. And what is, this is maybe something we don't always lay out, but what is the use of money? Why outside of like in negative relief of the Franciscans, what, what is it that people don't understand that money when organized a certain way can do? Well, so what I would say is that like, fundamentally, if you think that touch and immediacy is always prior to abstraction, then money cannot be a properly abstract potential for everybody to be cared for. Because in order for money to exist, there has to be a cabal of people controlling it, right? Like it had to have come from somewhere. Um, it, It has to come from a nation state or a capitalist class, or any of these things. Um, And then also, you know, you have this ontology of everything as bounded and limited and finite because abstraction has just been kind of banished and it's unthinkable. So they also can't imagine that money could be anything other than privational, other than something that you're going to run out of it and then you're going to be sorry that you were so focused on it. We can't think about money from any perspective other than... um, this kind of pre-abstract self fumbling for reassurance from the rest of the world and for, you know, when you're just this kind of disembodied subject, right, or you're a household, right, a, you know, an individual, right, who then gets thrown into a social contract, um, you're thinking from the perspective of an individual. And, in, 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 and if you're an individual, right, this is the MMT 101 stuff, right, a currency user, it's finite for you. A currency issuer, it's not finite. Um, but but I think the twist that we want to add on to that is that currency issuance is actually much more of an ongoing negotiation uh, across many overlapping institutions that, you know, we, we have the uni proposal that people can, can look into with universities issuing their own, you know, forms of credit and forcing from the quote unquote outside um, of the monetary issuing like fiscal institutions forcing some recognition of the ability, some recognition of monetary answerability for all of us in, in all of our different You spots. get a swap line, you get a swap line, you get a swap line. <laughs> but yeah, and also I think importantly, just as a simple, like from a simple analytical perspective, if an encounter with, an, with a thing and the touching of it precedes money, then... The horizon of possible futures, if you're trying to get rid of money, will always come back to that encounter. Because it's the before it's the Eden that then is leads to heaven, right? And so it's that it's that movement. And so what we want to do is submerge in a sort of ongoing problem, as Will as Will said, um, that takes the circle and doesn't see primal unity at, on one side and then fallenness and then primal unity at the end right um but all across this this whole the whole premise here being that of touching as the ground of cut like i can't touch stimulus packages into being right it 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 requires an infrastructure 
that is that is mediated mediated abstractly. Um, and so, you know, we we live we're living the the ongoing the ongoing not touching, and that's the that's the relation. You know, oh, um, is that like the internet? Yeah, it's like you uh, right now in your isolation. Ugh, because right now I feel like. I'm recording with you guys on the internet, but it feels like a chimera. It's, just like... <laughs> it's I'm not touching your the flesh of your face. No, like what do I smell like? You don't know. I don't know. That's right. I'm alienated so what, from so that. So what do you know? You know nothing. I know, but I'm not going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so we can, you know, I think it's now important to get into what you know. I I think I put down in my notes on Natty's notes because now we're we're getting meta. Um, the contradiction between the global and the national that that Pope Francis articulates and he he wants to make sure that like when he's talking about this this sort of being open to the stranger or being open to the other or like being open to a migrant coming and like asking and you going and touching them and seeing how you feel <laughs> as about you it, do you know yeah um, <laughs> um you and, can learn from their local flavor. Uh-huh. What's so funny is is what he's really describing is just like customs at the airport. Yep. <laughs> uh, really what he's describing is pat downs, but priests at the airport. Yeah. Uh, which oh. is yeah, it gets us into some some uh fuzzy territory. It's not fuzzy which side he's on. Right. Um He's on the side of the molesters. <laughs> we can say it. We can be that provocative. Yeah, on this podcast. that's the the Pino, uh, Pinochetista molesters. He's like, I need some more evidence. <laughs> I haven't touched those those particular yeah. instances yet. Not sure. Um, Twelve out of fifty uh, Chilean bishops came to this uh, ceremony of a Pinochetista molester priest that I am promoting, but I need more evidence. <laughs> Well, I've never touched that boy. Ergo, he has never touched him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how how could we know anything? I've, I I haven't even touched him. You know. Anyway, so contradiction between the global and national. What uh, what reading do you want to kick us? Yeah. Off so with? in one thirty nine, he wants to make sure though when he's talking about like his openness to to migrants that it's not on the terms of like a utilitarian approach, like. This is not, he doesn't mean it's like, my, you know, he's not, he's not Matty Iglesias was like, immigration's great for the economy. Uh, we need a billion Americans. Um, he, <laughs> so the Pope wants to make sure that, uh, that everyone knows he's not, he doesn't have a substack. Though, you know, maybe well, one day. that's, yeah, that sounds like that's in the, that's in <laughs> yeah, the, it's in the uh, pipes. If he yeah. ever gets canceled, it, uh, that, that's Yeah, yeah the, the, the only, the only options are fluffy papal mediation and grounding yourself in a substack. Right. <laughs> Um, so he he wants to make sure everyone knows there's always like a a sense of a, it's a gift that he's bestowing by um, patting down migrants and so he writes there is always the factor of gratuitousness the ability to do something simply because they are good in themselves without concern for personal gain or recompense gratuitousness makes it possible for us to welcome the stranger even though this brings us no immediate tangible benefit. <laughs> Um, and so, sorry, I can't like. Sounds like a great guy. Yeah, you're 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 really making me feel welcome, Francis. Thank you. Yeah, you it's, have it's great. You, you don't even mind that I'm a parasite. That's so nice of you. Um, you have nothing to offer, which is why I'm being so kind to let you come on in. And so we could we can continue to, from the next paragraph. Life without fraternal gratuitousness becomes a form of frenetic commerce in which we are constantly weighing up what we give and what we get back in return. 
God, on the other hand, gives us freely to the point of helping even those who are unfaithful. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. This is like when Liz gives Liz Brunig, like, lets Matt Brunig uh, have an extra hour on the computer. <laughs> so importantly here, even though it, it, it has never helped her to do it. No. <laughs> and she knows that. She knows that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the, the, na- like, the migrants are evil. They're unfaithful. Um, but, but God gives us freely. And so... While we have to sacrifice, we have to sacrifice here and now and touch these uh, people who are coming over our borders because God is giving us. And so we sacrifice for God. That's why we're taxpayers. And he's very into this idea of like, you know, there's this constant dialectics within. But, you know, he, he I mentioned before, but yeah, he is like has good policies about giving migrants full citizenship, but he even says at one point, like it, it is not ideal. Like the best would be for us to not have to migrate, like for you to be able to kiss the blood and soil of your land, you know, yeah. and your original like identity that is a real thing. Look, I mean, the, but we got to blame the Medici's for that uh, going back, you know? So what, what he writes is all of us are able to give, without expecting anything in return to do good to others without demanding they treat us well in return. And so, um, you know, Mexican, Mexican migrants might debase our blood and soil, but we can't expect them to treat us well. Um, but we have to treat them well in return. It, it reminds me exactly of the Liz Brunig reading we, we did in the last episode, right? Um, look, I forgive you black lives matter. Um, because I forgive everyone. Yeah. Well, and he does say, like, you know, the indigenous people do have their own culture and different ideas of progress. But, like, also mixing has been good in many ways. Thanks. You know? Thanks, Pope. I, um, I mean, I think that, you know, to kind of put a finer point on this, I think we're starting to tease out how built into the premises is, like, it's not in your self-interest to be kind to to the other, right? But you should do it anyway. Um, and I think a really good example of like where that led to in in the past is with the original Francis of Assisi, right? Who, you know, certainly throughout his lifetime, you know, did nothing but, you know, like, yeah, maybe he, you know, was sort of fetishizing the poor a little bit in kind of a weird way and kind of, you know, flattened them into being like, I'm going to visit the animals today, then I'm going to visit the poor on Wednesday, you know, and to, like... To be fair, he thought he himself was a was a horse. He, he, he saw himself as a horse <laughs> a little bit, eating grain. Yeah, but a, anyway. a, a horse on Wednesday, a yeah. worm on Thursday. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's Francis and the first generation of his followers, right? But then Franciscan metaphysics are then the basis of what a lot of the early modern, late medieval, early modern uh, European jurists are drawing on when they are first coming up with what will become the social contract in the nation state, right? And And all of these things that are from a surface level reading are like, oh, this is the exact opposite of Franciscanism. But that's kind of the point, right? Is that he's set it up to say, gravity will lead you towards acting in your own self-interest, but you have a moral obligation to resist and be selfless. Eventually, people are going to come along and say, 
well, that's stupid. We should just act in our self-interest because I have a family and I have a country and I have all these people who are counting on me and I don't even know a stranger. It's built to, yeah, Um, it's built to dialectically fail. Right. It's like how how Ian said last episode that like Matt Brunig just like kind of like has all these implications to eugenics and then like one paragraph is supposed to suffice. It's basically like, but don't do that. Right, right. So it's, it's, it's this kind of weird historic irony where like, He's saying, no, I'm saying don't be don't be selfish. I'm saying that you should selflessly help the other. But in doing so, right, he's saying that you're actually like losing something tangible by visiting the poor. But this is why you should do it. And you're giving freely. There's no uh, blackmail mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church uh, giving freely. And and so, I, you know, if this <laughs> wasn't clear enough, I'm just going to keep reading from the next paragraph in the in the encyclical um, where he writes, just as there can be no dialogue with others without a sense of our own identity. So there can be no openness between peoples except on the basis of love for one's own land, one's own people, one's own cultural roots. Bam. Love that. So good. One's own blood, one's own soil. (laughs) Some of the fascist countries worked together. You know, you had Germany with Italy, with Japan, that was, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Remember when Hitler visited Mussolini? It's like a multi-headed snake. Oh, anyway. Um... I I truly I cannot truly encounter another unless I stand on firm foundations for it is on the basis of these that I can accept the gift the other brings and in turn offer an authentic gift of my own. I can welcome others who are different and value the unique contribution they have to make. Just a, a quick note for the Deleuze fans. Notice the universal uh, the the univocal difference right there in that sentence. Um so I right I can welcome others who are different and value the unique contribution they have to make. That's like Regina George's line. I didn't just feel her in mean, in mean Girls being like, that's a really unique contribution you have to make. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, there's a sense, right? Like, they can visit, but they shouldn't really stay. Or maybe they should stay right now, but we should be aiming towards the system where we're all with our own kind, visiting each other. Also, with univocal difference, they are univocally different than I. Right. Right? We, sh- we have no commonalities. There's no analogies between us. Um, right? That's how you make really nicely seasoned food. Yeah, that's right. And so, only if I am firmly rooted in my own people and culture can, those, can that welcoming occur. And so, I'm just going to keep going. Everyone loves and cares for his or her native land and village, just as they love and care for their home and are personally responsible for its upkeep. Heimat, you know, famous. Yeah, um, personally responsible. That's right. Right. No, no one's going to help that's you. That's right. Paging um, Jordan Peterson. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, may, may, maybe if you help with the Pope's book sales, then someone will visit you and help you a few years from now. But, uh, you know, don't count on and, it. And, you know, what this reminds me of is I'm going to keep write, reading and it's, it's, it reminds me weirdly of uh, Judith Butler's work on Hegel and ethics, but we'll, we'll get there more. But So many um, things are constantly reminding me of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry. Pope Francis writes, the common good likewise requires that we protect and love our native land. Otherwise, the consequence of a disaster in one country will end up affecting the entire planet. All this brings out the positive meaning of the right to property. I care for and cultivate something that I possess in such a way that I can contribute to the good of all. So here we have, you know, the 
the Franciscan invention of private property, right? The sense of, of, of possession of a thing as the ground of private property, which sits before, before relations of legal endowment and legal naming of that which you have property over. And this is, again, this, this is uh, antithetical to a sort of legal history that thinks about the way property right becomes and, and is relational rather than proximate about touching a thing. Um, interdependence comes first. Right. And so, but what we have here is like quite clearly is an articulation of unless I know who I am, absolutely different from you, know my roots, know my land, have my home that I am personally self-subsistent for as a Lockean homo economicus. Who cleans my room. I cannot be open to someone that is absolutely other to me. But what he's what he's saying is, as Will suggested, it's like, okay, yes, the world is kind of fascist, but what you should do is just say no to fascism. Yeah, just resist it for as long as you can. Just say no to fascism, just like saying no to sucking those dicks, uh, men, and, you know, women too. Um, and just say no to um, drugs as well, because, you know, we, we all heard that as a kid. But the idea is, like, you set up the world in which fascism makes sense to then just say, not for me. And then you're surprised... When, on the other hand, it's like, as, as we just said with the early, the early Franciscans, it's dialectically meant to fail, right? It's opposition as its contradiction is then I have my native land, but I don't want to accept the other, right? But the, pre- the built-in premise is that there's an other and then there's me. And he was, and po- the yeah. Pope is pretty Argentine nationalist. Well, of course, I mean, he, exactly. he, he likes to like kiss the fatherland and... You know, like the, you know, the, I know that we're anti-Thatcher, but the Malvinas or Falklands War was like the the last gasp of the dictatorship. I mean, and he's all about that shit. Like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, well, right. That's, that's the point. He's He's both calling for openness to the other while participating in the ongoing historical you know, pseudo-fascism, post-fascisms that were around in his oeuvre during his career. Yeah. yeah. And the the point also is, like, we're, because that that's not possible, right? Because we're ontologically entangled with each other, it will always be possible to say, well, I haven't yet secured myself, so I'm not ready to accept the other. Right. And that's, you know, and so we're not even talking about like, you know, somebody actively choosing to do the wrong thing. The point is that like the proof of when it's okay to accept the other is impossible to reach because it is this complete nation that is absolutely like sure of its own identity and sure of its own self. But really, like, that's that's a that's just going to keep contracting, right? Like that's a death to, drive. Yeah. Like that's you've that's set, what you've set is. the search for the there there is prior. Yeah, and to so be, that's going to repeat itself. Exactly. It's that. It's right. I mean, like what it's got. What it's got. Call it right. It's it's compulsive. It has this compulsive element to it. And so once you've designated the other, then you have to first achieve self subsistence, 
Which means now we first have to kill all of the others who are here and send them out. And so you can charitably give gifts right. once you're self-subsistent. Exactly. You can and give so, the other. So yeah. first we kick out all the Jews and then we do, you know, then we can have relations with Israel. Right. That's the yeah. that's the logic. And while he does say he does say elsewhere, oh, we should accept migrants with open arms until we can get to a point where unnecessary migration doesn't happen. Right. And he actually uses the phrase unnecessary migration, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure who decides that, except, right. except Pope Francis. Socially yeah. unnecessary migration time. Um, <laughs> and so we're, you know, he, he goes on. And as Natty said at the beginning, it's it's so repetitive. Um, and, you know, the experience of being raised in a particular place and sharing in a particular culture gives us insight into aspects of reality that others cannot so easily perceive. And he, you know, critiques a sort of sense of the universal that is uniform, standardized, bland. Um, right. That is... This is like when he makes when he makes like a, a precept before he goes into encounter talking about the indigenous versus the colonial, you know, the East versus the West. He's like, I don't want to say that I'm like going to use a universal that's like some domination. It's like, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Oh, I, I remember. I remember what he was going to say also. It was basically like. In the meantime, until we can get to that point where unnecessary migration is limited, we should accept them and allow them to assimilate, right? So so there's this sense that, well, you know, the compromise is we're go- they're going to be subsumed by our national identity right. and, and their kids are going to be Argentini- but, Argentinian. But not too much because you need a rich palate. You need some seasoning well, on that food. You need a literally, local flavor. So. I, I was just about to read the, <laughs> that, that phrase, right? And so yeah. what, he's, right, what he's saying is, you know, the, a universal that's bland and standardized, right? We could think about uh, a perhaps borderlessness in, in, the, in his sense, right? will ultimately lead to a loss of a rich palette of shades and colors um, and result in utter monotony. Borders and so there's this... maintain flavor. Liter- right? So there's this sense <laughs> of having... And, and and the sense of color, too, is so... I mean, the reification of race and, and, and all of these social constructions is... It's at play here, and and it's because we have this material touch and touch and touch and this emphasis on the on the material otherness um, by which one's identity comes into being, which you know I, I'm just going to say is also is Hegel's phenomenology. That's just that's the whole thing, right? And once so, again, once again, little bitch, little bitch Hegel. <laughs> so um, he's saying, right? There can be no false openness born of the shallowness of those lacking insight into the genius of their native land or harboring unresolved resentment towards their own people. This is just kind of disgusting and and, and blatant and on its face, right? Like, Don't be a self-hating blank. Exactly, right? Um, I mean... Very Zizekian. Yeah, right, yeah. And, and so the sort of openness has to be, quoting here, done without evasion or uprooting. We need to sink... Root our roots deeper into the fertile soil and history of our native place, which is a gift of God. We can only work on a small scale in our own neighborhood, but with a large perspective. And there you have precisely the political economic problematic at stake in cultivating the sense of a, a, a localized encounter with material that you touch, right? A, a, yep. a kinetic world 
of causality. And we, importantly, right, like just to say this, we don't believe that we can only work at a small scale. Yeah. Right? Um, like the the point of money and abstraction being prior is one, everything is already interdependent, right? And what we're doing right now is related to other things in like far off distances in like this kind of transcendent way. I hate the internet. <laughs> the the Ugh. answerability of monetary coordination it's at an infinitely large scale, potentially. And, and what, what I mean, just like infinite spending? Well, I mean, we could, we could think about COVID, right? And this leads right back to the whole second episode of this podcast and Agamben being like, COVID is not real because that means that we need social relations, um, right? Ugh. And, and okay, what we have, like, the, the virus is a classic example where touch is not the locus of causality that can that can actually deal with this problem. We can't just work at the at the level of our neighborhood or our native land, right? You know. Although I wish my mother-in-law had touched less of everything. Well, exactly, right? We need to coordinate <laughs> non-touched provision, provisioning. I mean, that's the whole that's the whole thing, right? That's the whole yeah. COVID problem. So, a kind of a small analog of this from today, right? Is this kind of this fetishization of I hope that we do have a lot of listeners who are members of DSA. There's a certain kind of Twitter DSA person who is who says that the answer to every single complaint or issue or anything is to simply keep your head down and go to your local DSA chapter and be a rank and file person. We can certainly we we can affirm that, but to contract politics around this sort of fetishized local organization without acknowledging also right like dsa dues paid with dollars right (laughs) right like it's nested within public infrastructures it's not truly local because being truly local is not possible and and knocking on doors right we could think of the rhythmic assurance of knocking on a door um i was wondering why you were pantomiming knocking while i was talking um, is is a classic example of like (laughs) You know, pe- there are people who say, "Go knock on doors, go go canvas, yeah. go do these things." Right? Go go visit the voter. Right. Well, it's like go encounter <laughs> voters, go encounter people, go encounter workers. Where it's like, we need to talk to people, of course. Right. That's not necessary. That we're not negating that. But to contract causality only down to doing the activism work on the ground, right? On the ground. the ground. The ground. That's is the so good. that's the same metaphysical contraction right we need a we need all of it right we can't we can't be reductionist and that's a part of this podcast superstructure base we want to obliterate that entire reductionism like an eliminationist method that seeks to bracket things and say that's not real that's not the real causal locus right we need to look on the factory floor where the worker hits this commodity over and over and over again and he hits it and it's rhythmic and we watch it and then we and then it's all of a sudden it's an eisenstein film and we're watching the rhythm and the circle and oh sorry anyway um all right you just made an eisenstein reference we have officially jumped the shark um <laughs> sorry, just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. that's a metaphor it's disgusting um <laughs> and so we can only produce on the ground in our local neighborhood we can only knock on the doors of our self-subsisting, self-subsisting Heimat. So what does that mean? What is his political economic program? Well, everyone, if you had any doubt, he writes later on in paragraph 172, 
The 21st century is witnessing a weakening of the power of nation states. Is that Thomas Fazi? Oh, sorry. We have a a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Sorry. I didn't know I was reading from another Italian, um, Thomas Fazi, but we can keep going. Um, Chiefly because the economic and financial sectors being transnational capital, right, tend to prevail over the political, meaning the legal, right? So there's this, I mean, Matt Carp just wrote an awful take about this in, in, in Jacobin, but there's this sense that capital can't be beholden by the nation state. It, it exists out there in the global world of circulation and um, of transnational circulation. It's, it's an other, right? But it's, but it's not a good other. It's a bad other. No, we don't want it to visit us. We don't want it to visit stay away and to be clear where the idea is not that we like have like tax breaks to have a uh, uh, foreign capital uh visit our developing country the point is that it's a wrong framing capital's not a yeah, thing it's, it's yeah, yeah that's not what's yeah, happening yeah, yeah. yeah right like what's what what's happening is that is that public functions are being uh, carried out through public institutions that through the political right through the political which are designed with the aesthetics of private capital yeah. <laughs> right but you know there's there's no institution that's not publicly chartered somewhere and and you know not even just to reify you know like the nation state charters its own institutions or something because you know politics transcends that as well um what were you gonna say so I, I was just gonna say like absolutely and so where he goes with this is we have all of these atomized nation states which are sovereign essentially he hopes you know we we probably have to deport a bunch of people to make them other first before then we can op- open up our borders to them but then also what, just like not write off our sovereign debt, but pay it more slowly. Pay it more slowly, exactly. He is Argentinian <laughs> after all. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I, as a joke, I think we should we should have asked Felix Salmon to record something for this podcast about the Argentinian. Uh, I don't. I don't debt know who that is. That is like a that's like a early Obama era Bloomberg joke that no one's going to get but leaving it in continue yeah so um given this situation he says it is essential to devise stronger and more efficiently organized international institutions seems good right right this is his supposed macro right 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 with functionaries who are appointed fairly by agreement among national governments and empowered to impose sanctions if you clean your room then after school you can do model un (laughs) <laughs> literally and, right and and, it, and it's interesting because there are like historians or scholars who've kind of looked at more lefty inflections of the history of the un like uh adam getachu in her book about african um post-colonial movements but i mean it's very clear in his writing um some of the limits Yes, and and it's importantly <laughs> phrased too that this is a sacrifice. We have to sacrifice to enter into this global relation of these sovereign heads that then get to argue it out in the marketplace of national ideas. It's it's a social contract for nation yes, states. Yes, exactly. Right, like nation states are giving up their sovereignty yeah. in order to become part of an even bigger sovereign. Yeah. And it's almost like this touching, as Scott would say, is this mimetic, mimetic. Right, compulsion to reground, and we keep regrounding, and we have to build a sort of pyramid to of of because gravity has to hold it up of an international a, institution, a, a, a pyramid scheme that represents the collective will of each national hardened solid snake people people yeah ground right and all of these things, and so 
this, you know, leads to, I think, the the sort of culmination of his political economic vision, which is moving to 190, paragraph 190. Political charity is also expressed in a spirit of openness to everyone. Government leaders should be the first to make the sacrifices that foster encounter and seek convergence on at least some issues. They should be ready to listen to other points of view and make room for everyone. Through sacrifice and patience, they can help to create a beautiful polyhedral reality in which everyone has a place. Here, economic negotiations do not work. Something else is required. An exchange of gifts for the common good. It may seem naive and utopian, yet we can now, we cannot renounce this lofty aim. I, I want to jump in quickly, which is like, as the reader of the encyclical, I mean, this is embedded in the context of him going into forgiveness. And like, this is very clearly about, in many ways, like his own silence and the church's own silence and his continuing during the dirty war and his continuing silence um, regarding, you know, Catholic abuse, uh, the massive feminist movement for abortion in Argentina, which was successful. And I think that's interesting to think in terms of political metaphors, because he's like, well, all the leaders, like, it's a gift of all the leaders, if they can sort of swallow their pride and come together and see all sides and uh, everybody has their place. And, you know, he says, I can't oblige you to forgive, but it would be good. You know, I don't know if it's like this context of convergence and sort of, if I can be sacrificial and patient, I can see that like the right wing Pinochetista uh, molester priests, like also have a point of view and I don't have to forgive them, but I could. And I think you guys can kind of, uh, articulate how that connects to political economy. Yeah, and connects to Liz Brunig's uh, <laughs> thing that we read in a uh, previous episode. Yeah, but the sense of the gift and the sense of economic negotiation, it's fascinating because he says economic negotiations don't work, but he's precise. It's fascinating because he's precisely talking about, well, we need to have like regional blocks, we need to have the UN, and you know, he precisely opposed these kind of left wing Peronists during the aughts, the Kirchners in Argentina who were engaging in this pink wave project for regional associations, like this left-wing trade block, the Mercosur. And he's, he was the like head of the opposition to the Kirchners. Cause he was like a supporter of right-wing Peronists, not left-wing Peronists, but this, and this is also tied up in the sense of Franciscanism, right? The sense of charity, the sense of the gift, the sense that right. I want to reject the economic in order to find the true economic, which is like the, um, self-sacrificing love of a handshake. Foreign aid instead of loans. And and yeah. and I, I want to be a little cheeky here and do a nice analog. And because I think what this reminded me of, believe it or not, was Marx. And so I wanted to read from this because this idea of a polyhedral reality in which we don't do, econ- like, we don't do economics across borders anymore we exchange gifts we barter right (laughs) um is is precisely how marx describes world money in in capital volume one and because because the the reconciliation people try and make with marx and mmt is like well marx describes credit money in the domestic sphere um and so that's true marx does do that right and that that's perfectly true but once we leave the domestic, right? Now we're reifying this. What, is, what does that mean, right? We, once we leave that home soil, that proximate 
you know, ground that we can touch. Then we go back into the world of commodity money, right? And so here, and here we have the very beginning of Marx's section on world money. Uh, and this is on page 240 of, of my Penguin version of Capital. Let me open up my version. Yeah. Um, when money leaves the domestic sphere of circulation, it loses the local functions it has acquired there as a standard of prices, coin and small change, and as a symbol of value, and falls back into its original form as precious metal in the shape of bullion. In world trade, commodities develop their value universally. Their independent value form thus confronts them here too as world money. And so there's this sense here that barter holds because the moment we leave the domestic sphere, which, you know, we have all this trust. We can do all sorts of credit because we're the same. You and I, we're the same. We, we yep. look the same. We have the same. We're already commensurable right. as opposed to being forced to be commensurable by global capital. Right. We're already a people, <laughs> right? All right, Angela. Mm-hmm. Is that you, Angela Nagel? <laughs> um, and global capital made me believe in gay rights. <laughs> and so the thickness, the thickness of this people, this ethnoi, uh, as I've heard some call it, um, but on 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 international scale, it falls apart because I am univocally different from you, right? You migrant, you trader, and so what do we have to rely on, right? Okay, because we need a material ground. What is that ground for Marx? It's the commodity again. We go back to the to the to the commodity theory. The melted of money. silver. The melted silver, right? The value form as as evoked in the universally commensurable commodity that is money, gold, silver, right? And so this is what and this is why we argue like that MMT and Marx, perhaps on one side, could be imagined if you believe hardenedly in monetary sovereignty as a sort of commensurable to be to be funny because and and also most people when i i my opinion is that when most people like say marxist and get defensive of marxist they just mean like economic justice well right and we affirm and like there are components of the marxist tradition that we affirm absolutely but but i'm just saying that's why i think people get so defensive yes they don't necessarily mean all these details marx is is their thing (laughs) Um, yeah, it's like their way of saying economic justice against economic injustice, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a reassuring mechanism that it's, we have yeah. on the left. It's the there there, right? It's the there there. It's their yeah. thing. That's what I, that, yeah. right? That's, that's, and so. So if you go against it, you're going against justice. Right. You know? But here we yeah. see the analog by which Marx and Pope Francis have a similar view of do- the domestic as it's coming into the relationship with the global world. Right of transnational capital, and this is a, a huge problem because it reifies what the domestic is—a sense of trust in relation as a people, as proximate, right? And and so when, and and this is why we say right, Marx relies on a barter because he does at the global scale, right? It's not just his phenomenology. He's a, he's a Hegelian theorist of encounter. Exactly. I think that there's something really interesting here in, in the way that. Going back to our like the virus is the virus episode where we kind of dug into the like nature is healing meme, this idea of nature healing, right? Like that happens through people on the outskirt of society instead of bartering with the other, 
selflessly giving gifts to the other, right? Um, but but it's still this figure of an encounter, right? And of standing in what is this kind of void where you can either establish economic relations or you can give to charity. Charity is just the ethical version of establishing economic relations. Right. It's <laughs> if you're a good person, instead of exchanging where you get something in return, you just give. But the exchange where you get something in return for Marx ends up right on the outskirts of civilization and on the outskirts of your immediate homogenous unit where you all trust each other. On the outskirts of that, you barter, and then that ends that up... That starts capitalism. You know, yep, fast forward the dialectic. Because yeah, it's an encounter. Right, and, and capitalism, <laughs> it spreads, right, geographically, through touching, right, right through exchanges, um, in the same way that this healing is supposed to spread, and, too. And I want to also, because I, I, I think it's so, uh, honestly, kind of haunting the way that this encyclical comes out during COVID, right? And, and famously, like, some of the important and crucial historical periods that just precede the early modern one, which we can then locate as the sort of rise of this, this Franciscan tradition, is preceded by the, the Black Death. And so there's this violent sense but of... But Max, Max, the Black Death uh, was good for labor unions. It raised, it raised the uh, cost of labor, actually. <laughs> that was a huge opportunity for ending capitalism. They squandered, yeah. But but there's this sense of this violent... But we like, can learn from. Right, there's this shock of interdependence, right, that confronts us. And, it, like, we have to say, it's not... We don't... It's not necessarily something we, we, we love. Like, we all feel the stress and anxiety associated with it. We all have our, no, I, our mechanisms. You've heard me with Dasha. Like, I don't love my neighbor except <laughs> one of them. But it's hard. <laughs> like, interdependence is hard. Solving the problem of COVID at macro scale is hard and complicated. It is really hard. But you can't avoid the macro provisioning structure. Right? It's not as hard as Agamben made it, though. Well, no, of course not. It's not hard in the sense of it's. It's not hard in the sense in of the sense like, of a sacrifice. It's not hard as right? a sacrifice. It's, it's exactly. It's not a sacrifice. It's not. Yeah. Right. As it's if, just as if those deaths were a gift. Right. A charity gift because you can't. Yeah, you can't macro provision. It's hard because existence is hard. Right? There's pain and suffering and joy and beauty and we all share in these different problems and we can we don't have to have suffering, right? And we don't have to have all these things like there are problems we can solve in certain ways, right? There are ways to deal with things like COVID. Um but the As you can see in the countries that like actually dealt with it. Right. And that have done a better job than the United States yeah. and, and, and Chile because and probably others. Be probably because of their um sort of natural identity with the soil. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly with New Zealand. Um. It's, it's typical of the Chinese, you know, because that's very typical of them to sort of make a virus that they handle because they plan to have for their Brunig? own. Are you Matt Brunig? <laughs> You're Matt or Matt Stoller. Okay. Matt Stoller. Or Matt Stoller, too. You're both of them. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. But but they sent it on everyone else because they had already planned ahead little communist bitches. Communist. Yep. Well, they are actually pretty right-wing communist bitches. <laughs> unified Matt theory. Yeah, unified yeah. Matt theory. Um, and so, like, we can think about these moments. I mean, you know, 
people don't want to necessarily, you know, I don't want to necessarily want to take on this sort of quest for historical meaning necessarily, but there is something, you know, I've been listening, I listened to a Bloomberg podcast about the Black Death. Like there's, there's something hovering here in the way we have interdependence sort of, you know, crises in a way that are ongoing and they're always ongoing. It's in, it's unemployment, it's suffering, in countries in the global South, it's suffering all over. I mean, we, we can look to all sorts of ty- different types of suffering. And the response that we get, right, by Pope Francis is we need polyhedral nationalism. But I'm, and and the, the reason why we come so hard at people like Marx is because built in to his schema of capitalism and... Because he's too daddy for us. <laughs> that's right. We just can't handle Sorry. how much of a daddy he is. Um, is this domestic <laughs> fetish, right? This domestic reification. This reification of the thickness of the proximate. And that's his that's his reassuring, sort of rhythmic um, care symptom. Well, and, and it's interesting because Marx, I'm like, honestly not a Marx expert, but I'm sure that like at some point in his writing, he said shit against the national and whatever, whatever. But like, it's not nothing that Lenin is like his most famous sort of progenitor, but also like changed some things. But I mean, Lenin is like the ultimate nationalist in many ways. I mean, the sense of like yeah, completely. imperialism and anti-imperialism and the like is sense of the nation. You know, there is like a convergence between these rivals of Woodrow Wilson and Lenin. Right. Yeah. You start with taking over the univocal will of the nation state. Yeah. And, and univocal here also univocal meaning, right. When we talk about my will, <laughs> my will, my name is Will. Um, when we talk about my will as a person and we talk about a country's will, the word will means the same thing, right? Um, and that's univocal, is is being, speaking with, through through one voice. So words mean the same exact thing regardless of of how they're being used. And in, in this case, right, everything comes down to univocal will. Um, and univocal difference, right? Everything is different in the same. Well, those, those are. They're two sides of the same two, coin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because um, that produces the encounter and the ability to create the UN. Sorry, <laughs> it's an encounter between two wills, um, and the two wills can encounter because they're wills in the same way. No, totally. I think we've done a, a pretty good job of of doing. Um, most of the the meat, you know, the fleshy, touchy meat of this encyclical, but the bony part of the but episode. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about his cancel culture <laughs> critiques because this just feels oh god, this feels so connected to our podcast in a way that I think it, it just makes me laugh. Yeah, Pope Francis hates cancel culture. He's like, you gotta listen. Like, you got some, you know, like there's different sides. The internet is like chaos you know can't he, smell people's sweat he he signed the uh harper's letter with samuel moyne i think <laughs> oh my god 100 um, percent. Yeah. like if he knew that like enough about the internet to know that existed he would have 100 percent like signed his name he would have like written his name over yeah. everybody else's name and meant like not in a dominant way <laughs> no no just in an enthusiastic <laughs> way like barry weiss would have even got to sign her name um yeah <laughs> but so 
but but it's important. I think actually we could like think about media theory for a second too. Well, I think it's interesting to think through, yeah, like how this does connect to his theories. That it to- it totally does, and it connects to like our conversation with Matt Chrisman about media and spectacle and all of these things. But so right. we take then the the globalized world of capitalism, of spectacle, of all of these exchanges that ping pong touching each other until they created a global Jewish uh, internet. That I mean. You're not that wrong, basically, with what he's saying. But he says... You heard it here first, folks. Um, I can't wait for someone to quote that only and then put it on Twitter. Um, Yeah, that's like, as I said the words, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so, right, he talks about, in today's globalized world, right? So we start from that premise. The media can help us feel closer to one another, creating a sense of unity of the human family, which in turn can inspire solidarity and serious efforts to ensure a more dignified life for all. This is what we call the, 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 the the opening caveat before saying the radical opposite. (laughs) We can touch people who are far away now. Um, We need constantly to ensure that present day forms of communication are in fact guiding us to generous encounter with others to honest pursuit of the whole truth to service, to closeness, to the underprivileged, and to the promotion of the common good, right? So, so like, the internet, like, introduced me to Liz Burnig. Right, so we cannot accept a digital world designed to exploit our weaknesses and bring out the worst in people, right? So so it's like, love thy neighbor on the internet. This is the, the, the whole introduction to that, right? But then elsewhere, <laughs> elsewhere, um, he critiques digital campaigns of hatred and destruction, for, and and says that they are not, as some would us believe, a positive form of mutual support, but simply an Although association. I do want to. Sorry, I want to go back to the the digital world designed for our weakness because this is an interesting thing. Because I think some people see us as just these sort of like we love the internet. We are not aware of algorithms, and there's a very strong strain of of left critique, whether it's with Richard Seymour or Jody Dean or. Well, different. I mean, honestly, like throughout left internet, there's a very strong sense of um, self-denial. And there, there's truth to that, right? Like the way profit is designed, the way algorithms are designed, the way it's designed to be addictive, that it does try to like capitalize on certain things. But people's critique of this like very much gets into this sort of Franciscan rejection of money, like touching the internet itself is like kind of debasing myself, uh, devaluing currency of true encounter and infection and affection of knocking on doors. Right. And is very, I think, I think if I'm being, I think it's hurtful to most people, even though it's like very common, like self exculpating thing. I, I think especially like during COVID, I, I think it hurts most people's feelings a little bit. And that's why they participate in it. When you talk about, being too online and yada yada because most of us are in this modern time like obviously extremely online because that type of abstraction is like how you care for each other like everyone I know does not live in my apartment which is not to negate the work of people like Kathy O'Neill and you know there are others too who, who talk about algorithmic bias you know, I mm. I just finished Frank TAing Pasquale for you yes, had on exactly on the left. exactly Frank Pasquale. Yeah. I just finished TAing for a digital theory course where we basically talked about this for ten weeks in a row, right? And so it's important to to differentiate critiques of form as relates to the form of abstraction and how that is being constructed and designed from critiques from 
of abstraction as such, right? It's critiquing the internet as such versus the way it's designed. Well, and that collapse, that collapsibility happens really fast, just as you guys point out, like, and virus is the virus, like, capitalism is the virus, like, collapses really quickly into people are the virus. Exactly, exactly. And so... Not, yeah, not to say we're not anti-capitalist again, you know what I mean? Right, well, exactly. And and we're not anti-exploitation, right. like, we obviously right. are, right? It's the t- entire right. framing of, of the structure. Um, yeah. And so... He, you know, so he set up this sort of thing where it's like, we live in a globalized world. We can reach out and touch someone, right? This is like actually quite neoliberal when it comes to media theory. Reach out and Um, touch. He's super, he's so, well, this is like part of the slippage of Peronism, right? Like the slippage of Peronism from this sort of like workers, red brown movement into like inevitably neoliberalism like, yeah, it's like inevitably carlo <laughs> it's like this is, yeah. a, is a 1980s at&t ad that's like reach out and touch someone yeah you know? like um and by the way stole that from scott ferguson's class so um anyway but um this is typical of the problematic of having to have a moment that's right i know interdependent <laughs> um i though am totally different from my mother <laughs> i always check the breast for new jokes <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I um, wish I wish I could express to the listeners like the facial expressions I made with some of Will's jokes. <laughs> um. <laughs> just like this, like face of like dread and joy. I'm just like, oh, that was a, that was a brutal one. Love it. Oh, um, yeah. Well, that, it, it's the same face Francis makes when he's visiting the poor. <laughs> oh, I love you. So. At the same time when, when you know, Pope Francis says we need to reject transnational capital and blah, 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 he also says that these digital campaigns of hatred and destruction, i.e. cancel culture, um, are not a positive form of mutual support, but simply an association of individuals united against a perceived common enemy. That must be, it's hard to know, was that me? Was that Will? Was that you? Like, who who were the Marxists mad at? Who were the Marxists? Right, exactly. <laughs> I think it was all of the above. And this is, you know, also, like, the way that I, I find that a lot of Marx-inflected or Marxist critiques of nationalism sort of fall apart is they're like, well, they're just looking for a common enemy when they should be looking and then they describe looking for a common enemy, but it's global capital. Right, um, right. And they exculpate with, well, this is just an objective materialist analysis. Uh, which it isn't, you know, like uh, uh, the, the you know, uh, yeah. the, who, how do we name him? Alex Williams uh, Substack, who was talking about post-Keynesianism recently and discussed how, you know, like economically speaking, if you look at post-Keynesian theory, like there is not a unified logic to capitalism. Like profit seeking does not end up reducing to one single logic that's just like not empirically the case what it's not determinist no he was like shot he was like nobody like got mad at my post about with a line that there's no unified logic under capital i'm like that's the line (laughs) well it it was because he sounded really depressed so the marxists were like (laughs) oh okay he's one of us or they just didn't read that far okay so i'm gonna continue now um so (laughs) so the pope writes you know so, I mean, basically what, what we've just articulated, too, is this Schmidtian, like, reading Schmidt from the left, right? Com- common enemy, right? It's this, it's, it's, um... Daddy? The Pope is like, wait, no, no, common enemy. But then he has his own Schmidtian enemy. And, you know, we could think about our interview with 
Daniel Besner and his insistence on being Schmidian and and you know and and this sense of well, but while also at the same time accusing us of being Schmidian. Well, this so. is the exact cancel culture, right? Yeah, they just want to cancel capital, and that's the whole thing, yeah. right? And so we want to cancel fascists; they want to cancel capital. So, and and I think this one this gets into the connection between that sort of double movement of this bad faith critique of cancel culture, um, because the Pope writes. Digital media can pretty personal, yeah. Yeah, digital media can also expose people to the risk of addiction, isolation, and a gradual loss of contact with concrete reality. And there we have the touching again, alienation. That was the only thing I liked about Trump was his his story of association with the concrete mafia. And and you're going to really, this one's really going to hurt you, Natty. So this gradual loss of concrete, contact with concrete reality ends up blocking the development of authentic interpersonal relationships. So these, but but these inter, these so-called non-authentic interpersonal relationships, which is hilarious because now I'm thinking of like, Heideggerian inauthenticity and like how he brackets media theory. Also, anyway. I know I know Marxists like who are sleeping around on apps, but also like, you know, my friend will be making a new app, my friend who grew up lower middle class and they're like, "Oh, I don't I don't want to add a, another new app to my phone." Oh, like is ironic. Isn't the real life always better? Isn't meat space always better than real encounters? So, like Oh, is that how you meet girls in meet space? Like, um, really? Natty, I have... Nobody... Not nobody. Like, I've actually, like, not... I'm, like, not typically a huge online dater, but, like, the idea that, like, there's some space of meet space and real encounter is just, like, fucking queerphobic horseshit. Natty, I've never touched yep. you, so... Um. <laughs> but, no, but, like, honestly, I want to underline that. Yeah, that is, it's like, so fucked up. queerphobic horseshit. Yep. Like, oh... Oh, you don't, you're not like in an alleyway in the Castro in 1978. So go fuck yourself. Like, are you serious? Like, oh, and literally that in the nineties, Corachino said the bishop who made the Pope's career that, uh, gays should be locked in ghettos. And that's what some of this materialism is saying is like, don't we miss when there was like a gayberhood that was like where you had to go to have like a physical encounter before and, the internet. And even like further to the point, he, he goes on to list the things that, that these physical encounters lack, right? These these online encounters, sorry. This is uh, my lack. favorite part, I'm not gonna yeah. lie. This they is lack funny. the <laughs> physical gestures, facial expressions, moments of silence, body language, and even the smells, the trembling of hands, the blushes and perspiration that speak to us and are part of human connection. And that kind of make him cringe when it's a poor person. This is just so fucking rude right? during COVID. Like so many people can't, like apart from dating, like so many people can't see their family for like several they years. Can't, they like, can't hug their I, family. Yeah, and I live abroad and it's like, what? So like my family just like means nothing to me now because I can't smell their fucking sweat. And that's exactly what Agamben was saying when he said that Pope Francis should be out there hugging and touching the the poor because that is what St. Francis of Assisi did and that COVID wasn't, wasn't real. Because the existence of COVID denies the validity of this metaphysical tradition because it foregrounds interdependence as a problem that is ongoing, that we must wrestle with. It's not a problem of one that's created by money, right? It's not money creates interdependence what then money has to solve. This is an ongoing problem of existence. And we can we don't even have to look to the political economy, care. right? The riddle of care, it's also biological. What's really um funny about this too is like 
of all the people to be complaining about quote unquote these fake relationships because they're not like in person for it to be the pope who like people have pictures of him in their house and like like i just i want to see a like like a bitchy red scare style pope podcast where he's like really shitty to all of his fans because like their relationship with him is parasocial Uh, um our catholic that's the subreddit for uh for the pope that's the next dasha yeah and and right and that's but that's built into the contradiction of the metaphysics because if you you can't premise it on this sort of touching relation of reassurance and proximity while also having a social order and that's what happened to the Franciscans. I did post on Twitter and someone commented something like that. Like Will once said that he was like, everything's become a kind of spectacle. And I posted, is this the Pope or every hack Marxist theorist? And <laughs> my friend's like, yeah, the Pope is a really good person to be like criticizing spectacle, wearing a giant hat and like walking around with a staff as he like, like broadcasts himself to a worldwide Catholic church, Catholic meaning universal. If I can't smell the Pope... This shit is invalid. Um, smell, smelling shit. One of my oldest purple evidence gathering <laughs> techniques. And like what this leads is the reason why we're so harsh on Hegel on this show is because. And by we, we mean Max. Hegelian, the Hegelian <laughs> sense of contradiction is premised on a metaphysics that can't be explained by that proximate relation, right? That's why you need world spirit. The Holy Spirit. Right, to account for all of this order, all of this existence, all of this interdependence, and build this phenomenological Rube Goldberg machine that gets you to the state, which then gets you to the UN as world spirit. I mean, we were all there in this. And the problem is the premise, right? The problem is the premise. And this premise of encounter as this uh, quote continues here in 43 is a very, his, his media theory, like really reveals like the liberal nationalism baked into his idea of encounter. Cause he kind of encapsulates this idea of like illusion and fake news and that you're in this like self-selected echo chamber, which is like totally all the shit, all these supposed leftists were like dissing about, uh, centrist liberals who are just like whose entire reading of the media sphere was like there's two sides there's the side that knows the truth and there's the side that believes what Trump says and like if you're just in an echo chamber only listening to your own people coastal liberals and not with like the real workers in the real workers who are racist cunts in Montana then you can't in, in, <laughs> in your local grounded echo chamber. Yeah, totally. Right? The problem is the problem is that we've all lost our our based echo chamber, and now we're in virtual echo chambers. As as, yeah. uh, as Richard Wolf said, I think the assault on the Capitol really reflected the alienation of the worker working class. As you say.